This is Bassam Tarazi. Welcome to Headspring, a podcast that celebrates modern business leaders who overcome uncertainty and setbacks to embark on a journey of digital innovation. Today, we are speaking with Howie C., a senior product owner at BD. Enjoy. So we are here with Howie C. Howie is a senior product owner at BD. BD is a medical device company. Help help us out here. We're talking, I mean, I had not heard of BD before. I'm not in that business, but we're talking something like 70,000 employees. Is this across the world, across the country? Like, where are all these people? Yeah, there's business units in uh, Japan, Australia, Australia. China, uh, Europe, uh, the company started in North America. Um, and the reach is extraordinarily widespread. They produce, uh, lots of syringes and, uh, catheters and, uh, devices relating to measuring insulin and and things like that across the entire planet. So actually all the good things that keep us alive. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, actually most of them, um, uh, the vaccines that uh, have been distributed, across the globe, to my understanding, have been in BD syringes, which wouldn't be uncommon uh, really for any vaccine. Um, but because many of the companies that produced the vaccine were in North America, they, uh, they, they ship out a lot of the supplies from here. So, well, thank you to you and your colleagues. I'm sure a lot of people out there listening would say, uh, thank you to that. Uh, so, so that's the BD I guess, world. And your role within that world is a senior product owner. Now, what does that mean for the layman out there? Well, for the, to be a BD and to be a product owner, um, you work with a team of developers uh, to find solutions uh, through software uh, that meet the needs of our customers. Okay. And so as a product owner, Thinking about you work for a company of 70,000, maybe some people listening who have a company of 10 or 15, but essentially it sounds like, I don't want to say you run your own business, but you're in charge, I think, as you said, of providing a particular solution for a customer. So in a sense, you're kind of running your own, I don't know, I mean, is business the right word? But I guess a solution is maybe the easier title. Yeah, it feels a bit like being a business owner. Uh, the, The team that I'm actually working with is fairly small. Um, so we're a tightly knit group where we're constantly talking about, uh, the product, the customer experience and where we're going to take it, uh, in in the next week, month, well, two weeks, really. Um, uh, and, and about a year out is as far as we think. Okay. Okay. And if we had to rewind time and take us back to the day of how did you get your role at BD, and forgive me if I am messing the story up. Does this one have something to do with poker games? Well, uh, if we go back pretty far, um, I uh, started off my scientific career as a dishwasher uh, at the University of Florida, and uh, I was working in a molecular genetics lab, making uh, minimum wage, which I think was four twenty-five uh, an hour at the time. Eventually, I worked my way up and was I was allowed to perform some research and hanging out with the graduate students. We'd play poker, but uh, I, I played with a gentleman um, and we we play all the time. But I was fairly good at poker. Saw him years later and uh, he remembered me from those days and uh, he needed some help in his lab. And he hired me. Uh, I got trained and worked my way up to be the flow core manager at the University of Florida Diabetes Institute managing uh, millions and millions of dollars worth of machines and making sure that they could perform our studies and the studies from uh, other labs across the, uh, actually different labs across the university as well. So yeah, if it wasn't for uh, poker back in the day, um, who knows what I'd be doing. Got it. So let, let's, I just want to pause there for, for the audience out there and what we're going to try to take this baby steps. Uh, obviously we want to focus on the software, but I do think the actual work you do is quite compelling and interesting. So I'm going to read some notes I have and you can tell me where I'm wrong or or where I'm correct. So uh, the way I have it is you oversee the BD research cloud, uh, which for us lay people out there is more like an advanced version of Dropbox for researchers and collaborators who are working in flow cytometry. Now I'm going to pause and 
and talk about flow cytometry for a second. Again, for as simple as I can understand it, flow cytometry is a technique used to detect and measure physical and chemical characteristics of a population of cells or particles. So why would we be putting cells through through a flow cytometer? What are we what are we trying to do or what does it tell us? Let's say you have a, a human protein, you generated an antibody against it and you put a fluorochrome on it. And then when you hit that uh, laser against the fluorochrome, uh, you get a different signal. So the analogy that I always use is that um, if you take a, a, a red laser light and shine it around a room, you expect everything to come back red uh, that you shine it against. But if it shined a different color, you'd be very surprised. And then if you found what it was what was reflecting and making it change color, you could attach that to anything and then be able to find that target with that laser light, right? So um, it's a surrogate marker for that thing. Um, the exact same thing happens with uh, black lights where you turn on a black light and the emission is out of your visible range, but then it hits specific things that make them shine in your visible range. And then you think those things are actually fluorescing, but it's really the photons are kind of changing the amount of energy that they have in them. Um, and they make them uh, hit the uh, parts of our eye that can then actually see that wavelength. So same thing with flow cytometry, laser hits it, different color gets emitted. We detect that different color. And then because that color is there, we know that a protein is there. So it's kind of a linkage of that protein's there because this color was there because we hit it with this color light. Fascinating. So it's almost like I don't know. For us simple-minded folks out there, it's like a black light for cells and it helps us yeah, see what we want to see in those cells whether it be a antibody or uh, uh any kind of abnormality et cetera, right. et cetera, so that we can then do, we can treat uh as we would need to treat. Yep, exactly. Got it. And that is a nice segue. Uh first of all, thanks for sharing that, but it's a nice segue as we kind of want to lean more now into just the software quote unquote problem and solution uh, that you are currently facing or have been facing. So, uh, you know, as you oversee this BD research cloud and to remind folks, um, we're this data that comes out of the flow cytometer, uh, what Howie and his team are working on. And again, Howie, correct me if I'm wrong, but is a way to get research is a way to get researchers to collaborate. Well, to first see that data, to trust that data, and then to collaborate uh, on that data, no matter where they are in the world. And so there needs to be some sort of central repository, and I'm sure some sort of tracking and admin uh, that goes along with that. Is that, again, a dumbed down version of kind of what the research cloud hopes to be? Yeah, it's imagine if somebody uh, said to you, Bassam, uh, I want to make a very powerful piece of software for you. And uh, Dropbox or iCloud, you know, the, it brings your photos up into the cloud, but there are specific tasks that you have every day that can benefit from uh, enhanced features to whatever kind of cloud software you're using. But when you talk about a specific niche, such as flow cytometrists and immunologists, uh, we know that they want to collect uh, data and that metadata associated with generating that uh, experiment and, and the data that they're using to solve these problems. And so we have an understanding at BD of the machines, the flow cytometers that are used in this process. Um, we have an understanding of the reagents because we actually uh, create those as well. They uh, conjugated, fluorescently conjugated antibodies that are used. And then the final step in this process is taking in the, them into a software called Flojo, which is where the analysis is performed. But because we have all of those tools and all of the customers, we know that the experiment starts at the design process and ends at the generation of figures for your publication. And BD covers that all in between with the physical stuff. But how do we solve it uh, with features that are going to make this more efficient um, and make users better at their job. So that's our goal. Got it. And so in thinking about solving for this problem, is there a, like, what does one do first as a product owner? Do you, do you look for, okay, is there a software off the shelf to help me here? Or did you already know that? No, there's no way there's, there's a software out there. Just curious of 
you know, as you had that problem statement, what, what is the first thing you do in that position? Well, having been a customer, um, I knew what I wanted to do. And then I'd never worked with uh, software developers before. So um, the first step for me was trying to figure out what tools they have to solve problems. Because uh, if I want to design software that's just not you know, technically possible, feasible, um, that's going to be a non-starter. So talking with them just about what my problems were and what I had seen and, and running of what's called a flow cytometry core um, in this collection of machines, you have people walking in every day with different problems that you want to help them with. And there are so many problems that you really need informatic tools to solve them. So most of the relationship at first was what, what are those problems? And a lot of those problems revolve around the machines being not really well connected to the internet if they're connected at all. Right. So if you bought a printer or a, or a phone right now um, that didn't connect to the internet, you would think it was oh, a waste of uh, plastic and uh, silicone. But um, so the, the expectation should be for scientists to have machines that are well connected, uh, transmit data into the cloud, and automation happens uh, once their data is in the cloud to some degree. Uh, it is accessible, it's connected, uh, low latency. Um, so once we thought about it for a while and came up with a full picture and wrote down those problem statements, then we actually said, okay, what's it going to look like? Um, what do we want the journey to be in that process? But you have to start off with saying, you know, here's our target customer. Um, I, you know, looked over the shoulder of many, many immunologists. So, uh, I kind of said that I, I, I didn't get an immunology degree when I was at the university of Florida, but I got an immunologist degree by studying how they were doing their jobs. Um, but knowing the customer, I think, or knowing who's going to be using your software, um, has to be the starting point or finding somebody that that does, that can help you answer those questions. Got it. And once you validated, I, you clearly had an inside track as, as, as far as knowing your customer and, you know, your stakeholder journey and, and all those sorts of things. Do you yourself have a technical background enough when it comes to software and coding? Like, is there anything about this solution that you, Howie could say, you know what, I'm going to code my solution. I wish Every day, uh, I, I miss making things. Um, as a scientist, you get to come into a lab, and I always used to tell um, the uh, undergraduates and grad students that were in the lab, it's like, this is your playground. And that doesn't mean you can't be safe or you get to waste things, but be creative. Think about the problems that you can solve um, with what we make available to you. What, what else could be used to uh, make you do that better? But um, I used uh, R and Python in the past to answer some simple scientific questions that I had. I had some experience using uh, SharePoint and uh, making some forms and aggregating data that way. But as, as far as coding, um, you know, I made a HTML website, you know, 20 years ago. But uh, there's no way I could uh, code in, you know, React JS and, and some of these things without many, many years of getting up to speed. So... In thinking about that and thinking about the problem you had and how he himself could not solve it by himself, what what's the first, I'm trying to think of, of those business owners out there or those product owners who maybe are similar to your situation. They have a business, they might know some coding somehow, some way a little bit. What, what like... What do you do first? Do, do you Google developers? Do you, yeah, I mean, how does that search work? Well, you have to find somebody you trust um, and, and are talented and maybe start off with uh, um, a smaller like pilot, pilot and feasibility um, to see if you can connect. Whenever I was uh, interviewing for candidates for jobs, um, the, the main thing I would look for is, is there communication? Because if there's communication, you can, you know, motivate people, make them passionate, you know, um, you can get there. And I think uh, if you were, uh, you know, ma making a, an app for a phone or um, a web app, um, you're going to have to find a developer that you two are on the same page. And, and I wouldn't say that having any experience or no experience would be um, helpful coming in. But if you need to educate yourself, you don't need to learn to code. You just need that developer to point you at some websites that are in the same language, I think. And I tell people this all the time. Um, if you want to make new features, go find them on another 
website or go get inspired, go use websites that you wouldn't normally use and say, Oh, I like how that drawer moves or how that button reacts, or mm. they have this tool where, you know, it, it, it must be doing, you know, a hundred thousand computations in like four seconds. Like how are they doing that? And there's so much open source software that uh, you can generally, if you, and this is true for science and, and software, uh, the same. If you know that something can be done, that's a much better starting point than uh, trying to break ground on and uh, on something brand new. That's actually the hardest part about BD Research Cloud is that. Uh, and you asked this question before, and I did, felt like I should have fully answered it, but no, nobody else in science has tried to do something this uh, bold. And uh, not uh, there are very few companies in, that are in the field of flow cytometry that could even try to produce something like this from the breadth of knowledge and resources that BD has, but, uh, we have, there's no template. And sometimes that, that makes it really difficult for BD to be able to, uh, execute on some of our needs. Um, but with a small agile creative team, uh, we, we get it done. So it might be hard, but we get it done. And, uh, working with talented developers is always a, a huge bonus. It's almost like a cookie cutter kind of like if somebody just builds websites on WordPress, they build websites on, on WordPress. You kind of know what the solution is going to entail, but it sounds like the work that you guys needed done, you needed more than just people who knew code. You needed people who knew people because it sounds like this, there's going to be a lot of iterations here. There's going to be a lot of communicating. There's going to be some possible dead ends. So how much does just human communication go into something like this. And I'm sure we've all been on projects and, you know, you, you think it's simple, it's a software project, and yet it all comes down to kind of the people on the other side. So I'm curious how important that kind of human to human communication is, even though the problem you're trying to solve is a, a uniquely technical problem. Yeah, I, uh, I'm actually reminded, um, I, uh, I think I lied a little bit earlier when uh, I, I mentioned HTML websites that since I built a website, but at UF, we would use WordPress that UF had its own WordPress template and we would uh, build websites. And the first time I realized how important critical feedback was, was when I was making my labs uh, website and the uh, principal investigator, you call them PIs and scientists. So uh, a different use of that acronym. Um but they're, they're their own little business owner. They have these contracts with the government to make research, essentially, called grants, um, and they direct your research. But my PI once said, hey, let's, uh, let's make our website better. I started making it, and he's like, I don't like that. Change that. Do this here. And uh, by the time we were finished, everybody in the department wanted me to make a website. <clears throat> and I did all the other ones, but ours was always the best, and that's because – um, Todd, uh, my PI was always providing critical feedback. It was never mean. Um, it was never, uh, unrealistic. Um, but it was, it was on target with how to make it better. And, and sometimes, you know, he would say, you know, can you make this, uh, drop down, you know, 17 colors or something. And it's like, I don't have that in the template. I can't do it. Um, which is actually when I work with, uh, uh, real developers and they can do almost literally everything. It's just mind blowing. Uh, but critical feedback, communication, talking to customers, showing them, asking them what they want, um, what's going to get them in the software every day? What's going to make this a tool that, that they come to their computer and they're like, uh, this, this is my morning coffee is, 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 you know, grabbing a cup of Joe, looking at uh, BD Research Cloud and understanding what it's going to take for me to generate uh, all the data I need to get through today. It sounds like even in your position, as technical as it may sound, you are a de facto, well, you and your software solutions partner are essentially problem solvers. Is it a constant iteration process currently? I'm curious where you are today. Is it where you dreamt you would have been? Have there been so many kind of iterations along the way? And how have you dealt with those either kind of setbacks or ahas? Yeah, just curious of, of how linear your journey has been? I would definitely say that I've always been curious through this project if we would hit a dead end that would lead to uh, basically just saying this is never going to be uh, a valuable product for our customers. And because of uh, doing this probably at the right time in human history 
Um, we're, we're actually not trying to solve problems that are, that are new. We're trying to solve problems that are decades old with flow cytometry. So I think it's, uh, really been very exciting to work on from that perspective and coming up with something new, but a lot of the product is simple things of project management, um, and data management that are, are much more straightforward, but to have a full solution, you got to have these things. So some things are just components you bring in and some things were like, let's make this button like this. Uh, no, that's wrong. Let's do it like this. Okay. That's pretty good. Oh, we need to merge these two steps. That's going to take a while. How do we do that? Let's redesign the interface. So, uh, uh, the team has been very accommodating, um, for us to be experimental about this. I understand it was probably, uh, very frustrating for developers to have to throw many concepts away. But what we've ended on, there's not anyone in the business that I've shown this product to uh, that hasn't been excited for just a groundbreaking uh, technology that we hope changes the ability for scientists to generate quality data day after day um, and make their lives easier. So it's really exciting to have been a, a part of that development. Uh, yeah, that's... That is impressive, uh, to, to say the least. You, you had mentioned in a previous question um, the terms critical feedback. And I think for all the business owners out there, product owners, again, who have had worked with software teams before or, or other teams, how do just you, Howie, how it, has that been a skill you think you, you or have you always been, been good at that? Like the critical feedback thing or how and how have you improved and, and, and does that make you a better product owner? Just curious of, of that iterative process. How has that worked with your, you know, with, with um, the software partner? I, uh, I think I might've gotten this from my dad. Um, he would always look at forms and complain that like this line wasn't long enough and there wasn't enough room to write your whole address. And they're asking for your address on different pages. And I think that annoys everybody, but he was always vocal about it. So that's what I think about when I see software, it's like, mm, like I, I see that you fulfilled the requirement, but I must've not given you enough information to do it the right way because um, this is not what I would have done. And so uh, I think the developers having patience with me, and be in and understanding that I am fallible and me having patience with them um, uh, beyond. Uh, so being critical, vitally important, being patient, <laughs> vitally important, right? You, if you're just being critical and getting frustrated, then uh, you're just going to make yourself angry. You're going to quit. You're going to uh, make people not want to work with you. Um, but not accepting everything in its current form uh, and then putting yourself, uh, I, I would say one of the best, um, aspects of me producing software with a team is that I'm, I'm not the greatest scientist. I am, uh, not the smartest person on the block. I, I am fallible. I make a ton of mistakes. And when I go into software, I almost forget what I'm doing every time. Uh, so I don't gain a lot of muscle memory and I go like, I think I'm very good at understanding kind of the, the nuances of that new user and getting them up to speed quickly. One thing we didn't talk about is how many how many people do you have people under you on your team? Like how big is your is your project team at BD? Um, I have a a very good marketing manager um, that was a BD uh, customer and and knows the customer experience. Uh, uh, who's who's really great on the project and uh, him and I uh, spend a lot of time with the developers and I think we have eight. Uh, on right now with the maybe uh, maybe eight with the the owner of uh, the the contract company that uh, we use. I think the best part about our relationship um, is that they're as willing to learn as I am to talk. Um, so that that makes a, a relationship where um, they are very interested in knowing the customer experience. They are very interested in knowing the science. Um, they want to know how the how people are going to use this product, and the more use cases and the more dialogue that we have about it, um, the less I have to do. So the uh, the 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 amount of discussion that we have is uh, considerable, but I, it pays off in the software because it feels like customers are making it for themselves. Yeah, that's that's fantastic. I I, I want to ask as a leader 
And again, thinking of other business owners out there, how, how do you foster a safe space to ask questions? Because I've seen it a lot in in companies I've worked with. When you have an environment of people who, you know, they they yes you or they nod your heads, you know, eventually you run into a cul-de-sac on something. And I think the nature of, of what you are trying to solve for and get to, you need people to feel safe to ask questions. Maybe they didn't understand or, or, or they want to know more. Is there a I don't know, a tactic is, do, do you find yourself naturally gifted at that, um, creating that safe space for your team to ask questions? I think so. Um, I like to ask questions. Uh, I like to ask dumb questions sometimes. I like to ask questions that um, uh, maybe even have an obvious answer to make sure that I understand them. And, and maybe that sets up uh, others around me um, it, it, sometimes I think it doesn't, uh, I, I think some of my supervisors now kind of understand my, uh, method. Um, but I think it could make you really nervous if, uh, you have this person that's overseeing this incredibly, uh, new and unique piece of software, uh, and, and they're asking some, some wild questions, but yeah, you, I, I think, as long as it's a safe space and I think actually like, you know, messaging apps like Slack and just being able to have back and forth, um, we've lost nothing because of COVID and being able to communicate directly and ask all the questions that we need to. Um, but I think in a corporate world, uh, you, ha- you have to be very careful about uh, the number of questions that you're asking and the types of questions you're asking. Uh, Cause I, I do feel like I've left rooms uh, having people, feel like I'm maybe not the most qualified person. And, uh, you know, I suffer from imposter syndrome as much as most people. Um, so, uh, sometimes I might feel that uh, I might not be the best person for parts of the the job, but, but knowing the customer experience, cause I put so much emphasis on customer service when I ran my flow core that I feel like at the end of the day, I, I know those customers as well as anybody on the planet, and I'm going to fake it through the rest of uh, this all this other process and see what happens. What do you like most about the process of just figuring out a solution? And yes, in this situation, we're talking about a software solution, but I don't want to say what gets you out of bed. That's that's too generic of a question. But what what do you love most about trying to solve this BD Research Cloud problem? So I think when addressing any problem. Uh, I wouldn't say my favorite part is failure, but failures put you in the right direction. When you are trying to figure out if something's possible um, and you know there's 12 different avenues, every failure that you have leads you closer uh, to the correct way of doing something. Everything that I attack is always finding those, those doors and closing them until there's that one door open. Um, and so getting out of bed and, and actually finding those failures, I'm thinking about, is this possible? I want to get up right now and ask, uh, uh, my team, like, is this possible? And they'll say, no. And it's like, okay, I'll back. Wait, wait, is this possible? And that, and I think that goes back to that safe space and, um, and we'll just call it bad timing, badly timed questions. Um, I am probably an expert at, at poorly timed questions and then going off on tangents and, um, that's just, uh, unfortunately, uh, something I, I always got to work on, but it works out really well in informal scenarios. When you get eight or 10 people into the room, it's like problem statement. How do we get here? Okay. Uh, let's throw around bad ideas. Like, you know, just, just start writing stuff down and let's, let's, let's narrow it down to just what's possible and then think how to optimize and optimize and optimize until this is going to be really, really good. You don't have to be right very often, um, if you have a lot of ideas, take more safe risks. And that's a weird thing, but like, uh, don't be afraid to take risks. Don't, don't go too grandiose, but realize, um, kind of your bounds of, of what you should be doing. And then occasionally like, you know, cross that line a little bit and see what happens, um, to see if you can do more than what you thought. Um, so I'm always trying to, to push the bounds of what the product can be, how many features we should have. Uh, to make sure we're squeezing everything for as much value as we can put into it. I love that. I I really do. It reminds me of the statement by the famous social psychologist, Daniel Kahneman. He said, 
the problem that most people have is that they get too attached to their ideas. He says, ideas are, are a dime a dozen. Like you should allow yourself to have a bunch. Most of them will be wrong, but it doesn't mean that you yourself are wrong or bad or lesser. And I know it's really hard for us humans, but it sounds like it's a nice, uh, it's, it's certainly provided you the, uh, the width uh, in your current job to to find a solution that you need. So I want to I want to switch uh, gear. You know, you had mentioned this idea of of patience and how important patience is. I think just in life and and anything. Is there an example on your current project that you, that you needed an extended amount of patience that you almost weren't that you almost weren't ready for? I think just launching in general, launching the product. Uh, so we're about to launch, and it's. Um, definitely ready to be in customer's hands. It, it already is in our beta testers hands, but, um, BD is a medical device company and they do not want to put out products that are not of the standard that they expect. And, uh, coming from academia where, uh, you're constantly trying to publish. And as soon as it's, uh, polished enough to get out the door, um, you don't sit on it because somebody's going to scoop you and it's not going to be your idea anymore. So you have to move quickly or you're not going to be productive. And working in an agile environment, you're constantly working quickly. You're constantly changing things. Um, and uh, we want more and more customer feedback. But um, I think it's been certainly beneficial to slow that down and say, um, you could have, we could have put this product out over or maybe two years ago, maybe a year and a half ago. Um, and it, it would not even be close to the product that we have coming out today. And that might've, you know, ruined all the, uh, momentum that we had just getting all this customer feedback that said, eh, uh, you're kind of doing it right, but I have no reason to use this very often. So the product that we put forth, um, that will be put forth in the coming months is, is going to seem like uh, a 2.0 or a 3.0 to most users and, and not like a 1.0 type product. And that's because it's really not. But uh, in the grand scheme of things, if you could go a little slower, spend a little more time to refine it and make sure, and then have other people look at it and make sure. Uh, I, I think at first that was a very frustrating prospect uh, because I know people out there that wanted to use it and I knew that it would make their science better. Um, but it's like, hold on, let's, you know, let's do the testing. Let's actually put some reagents in some test tubes and put these on flow cytometers and make sure that we know what we're talking about here. Even though that we were doing was just, you know, the, the rules of thumb for how to do good practice. Um, you, you still want to prove yourself that it, it does what you say it does. And, uh, it, it was having patience with, you know, my children and my wife and myself, um, is always hard. So having patience with, a, a like a, a large, a large company, um, uh, was difficult at first, but I think it was certainly the right thing to do uh, for the customer to make sure that we delivered something that they immediately uh, could dive into and feel like they were getting value out of. Yeah, absolutely. And remind us, how long has this project been? Really, it's been ongoing for uh, over five years. Um, I joined about halfway through that once uh, the product was rebranded to BD Research Cloud. And, uh, it's, it's been kind of a whirlwind cause we had, uh, we were, you know, we had this product ready almost six months after I joined. Um, and then now I'm getting more professional, the team's getting better at, um, uh, delivering a solution that, uh, a large corporation is comfortable with. So just watching us all personally grow, uh, as, as people, um, from kind of less refined kind of, you know, let's make the solution, let's do it as fast as we can to, all right, let's uh, let's make sure we've checked all the boxes and that we've done everything that we said we're going to do, and not realize once we ship a product that oh yeah we completely forgot to do this whole thing that we said we needed to do before it went out the door. Um, uh, so I, I and and watching people adapt to that too has been uh, tremendously exciting. I didn't know I had it in me, and I, I didn't know if we all could do it together. Um, but we're we're going to be. Uh, I don't know if we're going to be able to high five and um, we might put on some uh, face masks and gloves and try and travel to a, a outdoor location that's breezy enough. But um, we're all probably going to uh, do a, a pretty big high five with somebody once this thing is live and we have customers in, in it. A few more questions here. Uh, 
you know, one thing we all deal with um, on any project that any of us face is that there's the project and there's the problems within the projects, but then there are things outside of our control that, that impact us. You've alluded to, you know, the idea that BD is a behemoth and, you know, it's an oil tanker. It can't just change directions uh, in two seconds. Is there anything outside of, of just work that impacted your guys's progress? I mean, was it life? Was there, was there politics involved? Again, I know you can't share everything, but, or, was this a pretty kind of concealed environment where you were allowed to just know we knew what the problem was. We kind of had our, our sandbox to play in uh, and were able to tackle that. I think that we were lucky initially um, when this project was small and, and nobody at BD knew about it because it actually started off with uh, funding from a, a VP at BD that was part of Flojo. And uh, he kind of sequestered his own funding for this outside the normal parameters, I think. Um, and it was, it was fairly well hidden for a long time. And then even after um, uh, a BD product manager came on and started implementing the processes involved that they require for launch, um, she did an excellent job of keeping it hidden enough that we didn't have uh, the oversight and too many processes attached that might kill it in its infancy. Um, because it was so different, um, it kind of needed to turn into organically what it was to become um, before it, it needed to get introduced. So like I said, early on, it's like, okay, there's some funding for this and I'm here and I just moved to Oregon and everything's working out pretty well, but anything could have gone wrong um, in this process. process um, a number of things that uh, could have said, well let's just pull the plug on this. This was too early, too revolutionary for us to do. Um, but eventually uh, we started taking more and more information up to leadership and uh, the, the project manager um, eventually, you know, told the story and, and did demos and it became a top six program uh, at, at BD, which I had no idea what that meant as, as probably people listening um, don't either, but um, a top six program is is something seen at the company uh, that we have to rally behind and make sure succeeds and deserves uh, top tier uh, support at all levels. So we went from basically being this hidden little thing to where um, I could reach out for resources at BD and they're like, oh, you're a top six program. We need to like, tell me about this more. And I'm doing demos every day. And people are like, wow, this is a BD. BD made this. This is amazing. Um, so getting people excited at uh, about the product too was really fun to watch happen um, and seeing it turn into, you know, like this little hobby car you made into the garage to, you know, like uh, turning it into uh, something that's being like mass produced, refined, and everybody is getting all of the their uh, force behind to make sure that uh, this is going to be something really cool for our customers. So that was uh, a really great thing to see because I believed in it um, and I knew it was going to do well. But uh, nobody else, I think, I nobody else should have had confidence in me. They, they kind of pulled me off the street for this, um, knowing that I had experience uh, of the customer. Um, but uh, I, I, I was sure from the beginning that I thought I knew what people would want. And and we don't even have all that yet, right? So I'm, I'm hoping that people see the value and that we get a lot of customer feedback to drive our uh, development because we want to prioritize that feedback and say, this is why we're doing something because the customer said so. Um, and make sure that we're meeting all of their needs uh, rather than trying to decide what the customer would want and kind of seeing how how they use it afterwards. BD Research Cloud for the customer, is it, if I'm, if I'm a customer, if I'm a user, is it saving me time? Is it giving me more accurate data? Is it giving me more accurate data faster? Is it giving me uh, data in a more central place, easier to find? Or is it all of the above? Um. I, I think it is all the above. Um, if we can start increasing the level of reproducibility of science, that will probably be where we have the largest impact on you know planetary discoveries because now we can take this network of scientific labs that exists across the United States and the world um, and have them have higher success rates and be empowered with new protocols that they can perform at a high level um, that will have impacts that uh, speed up science uh, tremendously. And that's what I'm really excited about. Man, that does sound, 
thrilling. As you're coming to the, you know, official launch here, is there anything you look back at and just wish you did differently? Um, you got to a particular solution, but having gone through it, anything you would change? I don't have anything before launch that I would say would, I, I would go back and hundred percent, we made the wrong decision uh, on. Um, and I, I think that's also kind of a bit of luck about it um, that we uh, have been able to make features, all the features that we set out to do and we've done them well for our first uh, release of the product. Um, but uh, yeah, I think if I could go back, I, you know, I, I just think about the things that like use cases and the requirements and like, should I have spent more time? Could I have talked to more customers? I think actually uh, getting customer feedback. Um, whenever you talk, I'm never too surprised by the customer feedback that I actually get, but it's quantifying that. So it's, it's talking to more people and hearing more permutations on how a feature should work that really can help you get it right you're never going to get it right the first time. Um, so if I could go back, I would say, uh, you know, I would talk to 10,000 people if I could. Um, and, and we would have probably had bit more refined features and, and more data to determine what features would be developed. But um, my favorite part about BD Research Cloud is the feedback button that's in the bottom right-hand corner where any customer can tell me exactly how they feel about it. And my watch will bing when they send it in. And I'm going to know uh, that that the information was sent and how to make potentially their research better, their research easier, the research faster. Um, so we're going to get that feedback and uh, squeaky wheels, um, you know, get the grease, right? I want customers, not all of them have to be squeaky wheels, but those, those customers that are squeaky wheels are my favorite because um, it's not going to get better without them. It's just going to stagnate and we're going to make buttons shinier and, and uh, things that aren't important to the customer. But I want to hear, um, you need to, you know, uh, uh, transform my RNA seq data into a manner that is better or something like, give me, give me something hard, give me something that nobody else is doing so that, uh, I could stay up all night thinking about it and then talk to the developers. It's like, I think I got it. And they'll say, how we can't do that. And they'll say, well, <laughs> I'm going to, I'll think about it some more, but it, you know, it's the, it's the nine failures before the 10th that gets you really uh, excited. Is there anything you learned from a technical aspect on this project. Again, I'm trying to think of the person out there who, you know, they might know a little bit about coding like you may have, may have built a website or, or something like that. But is there anything that you've either been blown away by or just impressed by as far as on a technical front, uh, that you've learned? So when I think about, um, the, the software language that we're using is react and it's been developed, uh, I, I think is a comp or I think Facebook has put a lot of development effort into creating React, but it's based on JavaScript. And I'd seen some JavaScript, and I played with some websites that use JavaScript, and uh, some people call it a toy language. And um, but watching people that are talented with uh, software development and coding, and watch them take something that is uh, that does something simple, and then making it do very, very complex things is just extraordinary. So working with developers, I think an important part of working with a group of people that are, are doing a job for you. It's if, if I was building a house and I was managing that project, um, if I saw them showing up every day with, uh, you know, jackhammers and, you know, uh, 50 foot cranes and they're building a residential house, it's like, I'm not an expert, but I don't think you have the right tools. And, in the same situation with them, it's like uh, if I understand the tools that we're using and the packages and the libraries that are out there and, and can have some basic understanding of their toolbox, that helps me as a product owner write tickets that it can actually be executed on. Um, I can dream up features all day, but if, if it's not executable and they don't have the vision on how to put those parts together uh, to make this a good product, then we're, we're wasting our time. If you make... Uh, I say this a lot. If you make 60% of a feature, you made 0% of a feature. Um, because if, if it's not what the customer wants, they're going to say, oh, I see what you're doing there. Uh, come back when you. this is what it's supposed to be, right? Um, so understanding the toolbox um, and then giving them the description and the vision they need to execute um, is, is 
is kind of the relationship that you need to develop to be successful. Um, and then watching them use those tools. It's like watching somebody on uh, work with wood and they take this you know log and turn it into a, a piece of art. It's like you, you, it blows your mind that somebody can have the vision and do something with that other than, you know, turning it into, you know, a nightstand, they can like carve it into a, a dolphin or, or, you know, a crazy lamp or a table um, that when you, when you see really talented developers, you're realizing that you're, they're using uh, very common parts in very unique ways to come up with the solutions. So when you're like, once you start seeing other websites, it's like, I kind of like what they do here. And I kind of like how they do that. And then you see them implement it and you're like, oh, you did that way better. That's, that's really impressive. I like what you're doing there. Um, so watching it all unfold and understanding the limitations and the confines in which someone's working in and then pushing those boundaries um, is a really cool process for anybody who wants to uh, start developing software for the, the needs of either themselves or their users. Man, 60% of a feature is 0% of a feature. Howie, that is gold. I think a lot of us, no matter the industry we're in, can actually take that to heart. And, you know, it just, it shows you, I talk a lot about finishing, about closing the loop on accountability and 95% just isn't all the way there. So that, that is just a, a, a lovely way to kind of just approach life uh, and, and projects of all sorts. The last thing I want to ask on the, on the kind of, you know, your journey on this project is, you know, okay, you learned a bunch on the technical aspect, but how did you as Howie, uh, how has it impacted you personally? What have you learned about yourself? Uh, how have you grown um, over the past couple of years? When running a, a scientific lab, um, it's kind of no holds barred 24 seven. Um, you got to feed these cells that you're growing and samples come at crazy times. And uh, I was really good at uh, pushing myself to uh, follow that schedule. And then software has afforded me the time uh, to take things a little slower um, and think about things a little bit more. So it's, it's changed me. Um, I think I'm just as willing uh, to have discussions and ask those poorly timed questions. Um, but I'm always asking questions and always trying to, uh, uh, think about things in a, in, uh, from different perspectives to make sure that we're making those right decisions. What would you say to the person who has no software experience, but maybe is now at an impasse with their company and they, they know they need some sort of software as a solution. What, what, what's some advice? I know you're probably way more advanced than maybe, you know, as far as the problems you're tackling, but the people who are intimidated about working with a vendor or working with all kinds of things, software, having no knowledge of software, what, what's some advice uh, you could give them? I would say that uh, I think just about everybody um, in the American business place uh, is probably familiar with Excel. Um, and beyond that, there have been some very you know large programs that that have been built uh, across, um, you know, some of the, the the sales systems that are at grocery stores and stuff like that. But everything comes back to like tables of information. We're, like as Americans, we're constantly creating data, um, whether it's on social media um, or for our jobs. Um, if you're balancing your checkbook, you know, all all of that's in rows and columns. So, how can an interface make your life easier? Like, how can you go? so far beyond an Excel file that it actually feels uh, fun to use uh, a piece of software. It, it feels like that, that magic is happening where you're, you're not just, you know, tabbing across and, and putting in values, but uh, you're interacting with that software. It's immersive and it, it, it makes you excited to use because you can do your job better uh, and, and faster and collect data about potentially you doing your job. So uh, to, to anyone who thinks that what they're using is good enough, um, I would say if you can dream up uh, a couple ways to, to save some time, um, you you already have a good start as to how you can change the, the way that you do your job to make it better. And for those folks who are, who are maybe realizing, yeah, I'm, I'm going to need a custom software solution and I myself can't do it. Any advice for them as far as like 
working with a particular vendor, what to look out for? I think it always comes down to communication. If you can talk to somebody um, and share a vision, you have a shot at success. But um, if they're not really jiving on the requirements that you have and and they're not willing to learn about um, you and your experience within the context of, of, of what you do and, and how to make, if they're not excited about like, Oh, I, we can do this. Like, I see what you do and like, I get it. And, uh, we can do this and, Oh, this other industry, they do this thing. Like, do you want to do that? And it's like, "Eh, maybe, maybe not. But you know, you keep injecting with different ideas, but there has to be a starting point of, uh, getting on the same page about the basic, I, I guess it really, it's like that, that target customer, and what what is going to make their life uh, better? Those those sets of, of features that you need to to develop. So um, if if they're coming to you with ideas and they're like, oh, does an immunologist want something that you know paper clips paper together? And it's like, I think they already solved that. But you know that they're thinking about it, even if it's uh, if it's if it's wrong. Um, I think it's a good indication that they're they're thinking about that customer experience in their own time. And you want to create developers that turn into, they can picture that customer in their head. And you realize that when that software is made, that they understand your customer um, when you see that final product. And that's when you're going to make something special. What's next for for Howie? Uh, so BD Research Lab, let's just say it's, it's, early, it's early 2022. Is this your baby kind of moving forward? There's going to be iterations or is there a possible new project that you'll tackle at, at BD or do you not know yet? I think I signed up for the long term on this one because there are so many uh, pain points I think left to address. I hope to continue seeing uh, the faces that I've seen at conferences and the people that I know out there who are immunologists and watch them grow um, and enable them uh, you know, to, to cure cancer, to cure type 1 diabetes, to, to cure lupus, right? That's our goal. Um, so when, when BD research cloud is fully formed, I hope that, uh, those, uh, maladies have also, uh, been addressed and, and then, you know, I'll, uh, start teaching, uh, sailing lessons or something. Uh, but in the meantime, I think I can hang my hat on this one for quite a while. Yeah, that is, uh, <laughs> that is an impressive, just project life, uh, business goal. I am happy you are there, uh, leading the charge. And, and if we've learned anything from Howie today, it is don't be afraid to ask more questions. We all feel like imposters. Uh, thank you, sir. Thanks, Basam. We will leave it at that. Everyone, I hope you enjoyed the show and we will be back soon. Headspring is sponsored by IQ Lab. IQ Lab is dedicated to transforming enterprises through digital automation, IoT, and data science. For more information on IQ Lab, please visit iqlab.com. That's E-Y-E-C-U-E-L-A-B.com. Thank you.